the very dawn of this country's brave new democracy, Cape Town was at war. Pachat, which started as a community protest action against crime, had mutated into a sinister vigilante group wreaking death and destruction across the city. Between 1996 and 2001, there were more than 400 bombs, most famously at the popular Planet Hollywood restaurant at the V&A waterfront. And there were countless target hits on drug lords and gang bosses. The police were at their wits' end, the new ANC government was alarmed, the citizens of Cape Town were living in fear. Mark Shaw tells the incredible tale of how the police's response pulled together former foes, struggle comrades and the apartheid security apparatus to break the Pachat death squads. In this episode of PageCast, Mark Shaw will be chatting with Alrina van der Spee about his new book, Breaking the Bombers. Enjoy. Good morning, Mark. Hi, Rina. It's lovely to be here in different parts of the world in a way to celebrate your recent publication, Breaking the Bombers, with a subtitle, How the Hunt for Pagot Created a Crack Police Unit. Thank you for this opportunity. Just allow me to introduce you very briefly. Mark used to be a former colleague of mine at the Center of Criminology at the University of Cape Town. Since those days, I have retired and I now have the title of Professor Emeritus. It sounds really um, important, but it isn't really. And Mark has moved back to become the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. So, Mark, that will do for the moment. I think a local audience would be very familiar with some of your most recent publications. But this morning, we have an opportunity to just exchange a few thoughts and ideas and comments around breaking the bombers. So I wanted to just start off by saying that as I understand it, Breaking the Bombers is primarily a story about Pagot, so it would appear. But the more I read, the more I became aware that although the spotlight is so centrally on the birth, the evolution, the mutation, the morphing of what started out as an anti-crime forum, prioritizing the issues and the safety concerns of communities on the Cape Flats, over time it evolved in very interesting and dramatic ways into something else. But the story is not about just Pagot. I think there are many layers in the conversation that take us into different routes. And I think that's quite an achievement, is to put together a compilation that is partly political history of um, quite a treacherous moment in the new South Africa, but allowing the readers through the lens of Pagot to also encounter thematic issues of importance such as state capacity to contain what became an urban threat. It is a book that I think will appeal to many, those interested in history, in criminology, in the art of state building in the context of transnational organized crime, 
students and practitioners interested in justice and security issues would find a lot of food for thought. And then there are others interested in public policy developments during quite a critical phase of the transitional state. And lastly, I think there are a lot of people who will just pick up this book and read it, much like Hitman for Hire, as a crime text dotted with dramatic personalities, fateful choices, and the spectacle of violence. So thank you for bringing this to the bookshelves. And I wanted to ask you, how did this idea about this book, this topic, how did that originate? And how did that idea develop over time? Could you tell us a little bit just about that trajectory of an idea that is put on paper? Irina, thank you very much also for your kind comments on the book. The idea came partly because, as I recount briefly in the book, I'd had some uh, dealings with the Pagad response when I myself had been in the state. That doesn't mean at all that I was a central uh, character to that, as, as I explained. Uh, but it seemed to me at the time that this was a very important story because it was the, I don't want to say, well, it was one of the key security challenges of the immediate democratic environment. And at the time, there had been long forgotten now in many ways, real challenges and pressure to change the constitution, for example, to arrest people uh, without trial, to hold them because there was a real urban terror threat. And this weird case of just a large number of bombs across Cape Town, 400 odd in total, but a significant number, about 20 in, in real civilian targets, several on the waterfront. And if you can imagine the waterfront being bombed now, including by car bombs, um, it would be a major story. And it was a major story at the time, but there were so many major stories, if you like, emerging from South Africa. So it was this key moment, which I thought hadn't really been written about. It had been written about in quite a, uh, this is not a critique of, of what others were doing, but in a quite a non-granular way. And I myself was interested in the granularity of the stories, the individuals that had been involved and the state's response, which had been in, in a couple of uh, places touted as a success, but th that success, you know, why it was a success wasn't really said. So that's where the idea emerged from. And, and then the release of, after almost two decades, the release of some key Pagad folk from prison, and the fact that a lot of law enforcement people had retired or moved on, and I felt that they might be ready to talk now, because at the time, there's just a huge amount of sensitivity around it, including from victims and people who were just scared. The Pagat threat, people were very, very, and are to some degree, very scared of Pagat, and with reason. So the, the idea emerged from that, this idea that this was a story that should be told, and then the sense that the story might be pertinent to today. You know, what lessons could we draw from this period about a set of kind of key issues which you yourself know very well? Responding within the framework of the rule of law, as you have said, this very contested issue of the use of intelligence 
and converting a state that had used intelligence for political purposes and people with intelligence experience from the ANC, political intelligence, how do you turn that into the collection of evidence? Frankly, this is, remains a key challenge several decades into the new democracy. And how do you build political will? How do you manage these things politically? These were all sort of themes that emerged from the book, quite apart from the, the fact that there was a cast of characters of such enormous interest. And so it seemed all of those things together seemed to be a story that that should be told. Yeah, I want to come back to the cast of characters, you know, opening the book and seeing there's a list of dramatic personas that you feature up front in the text. And then realizing as one reads through the book that it's not just a story about an organization locked into battle with the big organization called the state. But what you succeed in doing is highlighting the extraordinary, sometimes muddied, doesn't really matter, contributions of ordinary people, people in key positions. So I think part of the attraction of this book is that it's not just a story about an organization, its philosophy and its means of operation, but you succeed in dragging sometimes, you know, out of the mist of things that we have forgotten individuals that were quite critical. So in a way, a celebration of the kind of agency that individuals either in uniform individuals in ordinary clothes, whatever the case may be. So that for me is also a very strong feature of this book. I wanted to just pick up, not to talk too long about the kind of research, the logic, the politics, the ethics of doing research on a topic such as this, just to share, you know, some observations. You've mentioned already that this kind of book had to wait 20 years down the line, highly securitized issue, highly politicized, a lot of fear. How does one engage in the field with those individuals that have knowledge, perspectives, understandings of the issue? Of, of all the books I've done, this was really the most challenging, I mean, because I had decided that I wanted to write about people partly because you, and you have stated it very well, the sort of agency that on both sides, of course, there's a big structural features being present, but there are individuals acting to shape their context in quite dramatic ways. And so to try and record that meant telling the story of multiple people who were engaged. And I think before getting to the challenges of research and ethics, I think one of the key issues is for the reader, it's very important to have people populating the story, these very interesting and fascinating characters. You know, Some of them are dead now, but others are very much alive or participating. But at the same time, you can have too many characters. So who do you choose to tell the story? And, and that's a feature of access. It's a feature of determining who, in fact, did play key stories. It's a, it's a, a feature of, of who will talk, not necessarily those characters, but people around them. And so... At the beginning, I didn't know all the characters, to be really honest. Uh, so it's not like I had a sort of clipboard and then went in and, you know, tick, tick, these are the, yeah. the people. And and the proposal I had written was very much, well, actually was very different. It, in fact, suggested a more cohesive state response 
that when I began to dig was not the case, actually, that there was a lot of conflict within the state, that particularly amongst the sort of specialized units, detectives and others, the story was much less clear and attractive than perhaps I had anticipated. And of course, that's genuinely the story of the world, but also of South Africa. I hadn't, you know, there's a chapter on these very interesting individuals in the bomb squad. When I began, I had no idea of that. And I should have known because, of course, who, who, was, who was appearing at all the, the explosions and, and doing stuff? They had had a very non-public role. They weren't in the press. I accumulated masses of, I'd had some help, but accumulated masses of press clippings. They were never quoted. And that's for particular reasons, as I've said, the detectives were quoted often, you know, politicians, others. There was no hint of the bomb squad. Yet there were very important things taking place within that. So essentially, I started interviewing across a large number of people and then the, the, the windows of what the chapter organization should be, you know, the bombers themselves and all the ethical and legal challenges that, that relate to, to naming them because only two were formally prosecuted. That sort of emerged and that had a lot of difficulties, I, I would say. And, and although I say I did around 60 interviews, you sort of count them up, but, but there were many additional discussions and many of those people was, were spoken to multiple times. Some prominent people were absolutely fine on the record, as you know, others absolutely not. And I, I've worked to to mask some of that while staying absolutely true to the to the story as as I saw it. And that was both challenging, but also in, in some ways fun to try and tease out the story because I didn't know 80% of this at the beginning, to be very honest. Right. You made reference to the kind of the search for a more, what you called a granular analysis, an investigation that wanted to uncover not only the, the, the macro stuff, but the micro details. And what I'm hearing you saying is that in that process, one is confronted by the messiness, the fudging that happened in real life in a number of institutions. And that is a worthy story to tell. And I am sure just focusing on the state for the, for the moment, of course, we've become much more aware of the incredible turf battles and backstabbing and tensions within the intelligence and security sector. What you capture at a different point in history for an interesting set of reasons, of, of course, at the time, is exactly those contestations, the, the, the divisions of labor between specialist units that are not clear, some that are in the public eye and others that work very much backstage. So I think it's, a, it's, a, it's that uncovering of, of the layers um, is, is relevant not only to the history, but of course also to understanding what it takes to put together a relatively cohesive strategy around these kinds of issues. Um, Mark, I want to ask Pagot. This is a story about Pagot. Would you say that Pagod is a, an interesting variation on a much wider theme 
of anti-crime mobilization. Yeah, interesting. In specific contexts, it's a, a variation on the theme of how moral panics are created, are acted upon. It's a story about the significant role of moral entrepreneurs. It's a story about how context ends up shaping the trajectory of such a social form of mobilization. So in a sense, it is a variation on a generic theme. And we can find many examples over the last 30, 40 years of anti-crime mobilization on the Cape Flats. At one level, it's generic. And I think that's helpful to think of Pagot not as a beast. You know, it's just an, a social animal, really, that is quite common. But at the same time, there is also something very specific about Pagot as an anti-crime mobilization stroke vigilante organization. Just some comments on that. I think those are really important points. And I think the first point to say is that Pagad was, I think, is more, was more of a strategy by a particular group of people than it appears. Kibler, I outlined that, that in the book, that in this immediate post-democratic phase, these were I don't want to say fragments, but individuals who had been involved partly in the liberation struggle, so they had networks in a variety of places, they had training, they felt marginalized by, by what was going on ideologically. The strand of you know the linkage to looking up to the Iranian revolution, these for me were all fascinating points around this group of individuals who then mobilized a wider group of people around crime. And, and people were ready to be mobilized because drugs had begun pouring into the Cape Flats, let's say, from the late 1980s into the early 1990s. That was the first issue. The second issue was hugely critical and I think really relates to South Africa today is the sense of corruption between the police and the gangs, the sense that the police talk to the gangs. Uh-huh. This idea, uh, you know, widely known but frankly, under-analyzed is these very complex informer and other networks that tie the police to the gangs. And what that does, the sense that the gangs and the police are on the same side and communities are on the opposite side, the sense that the the police were speaking to the gangs. You know, I I recount the story of this meeting at the waterfront between prominent gangsters and, and, and the police. You know, whose side are the police on and the ability to mobilize people against that? And key to that. I think, which is what you're getting is at, is that a vigilante mobilization. And you see some of this in Soweto, for example, in contemporary South Africa, a mobilization against crime becomes a mobilization against the state. And this took dramatic form in the form of bomb blasts, right? You attack state targets, you attack commercial targets, all of this before 9-11. So it's a very important point. Yeah. In this ideology emerging from the sort of post-Mujahideen uh, Afghan conflict. So it's this particular moment in time that colors this this, mo- this period of, of mobilization. And there's some super important lessons there. And I, I implicitly draw three, I think. The first is that the vigilantism, the killing of hundreds of people, literally gang gangsters, gang bosses, actually fragmented the gangs and made things much worse. So that's, a, I think, an important conclusion. Secondly, the, the, the danger that vigilantism poses to the state, 
um, and it, it, which is crucial. And the third, I think, is how the state failed. I think they may have failed in any event because the, the authors of this vigilante movement in the end had no interest in talking to the state, and the state tried to talk to them. But the kind of compromises that the state makes with vigilante groups, because the first instinct is to compromise, to talk, to partner. And then the vigilante group, in this case, turns into a kind of criminal group, criminal, ideological, terrorist, um, whatever you might term. So the the partner becomes, or the, the potential partner becomes the enemy. And by the state responding, and has to respond because the state is under attack, the degree to which the original object of the gangs and crime themselves gets put aside and then um, comes back really surging back to, to challenge the state. So I think there's so much in this package that, that actually I, I hope a reader gets from, from the book, even though the book is fundamentally a, a, a story, it's not an academic analysis, but I, I hope that in between the lines, some of these things emerge, Arena, and you are right to put your finger on it. Because in contemporary South Africa, a weakening, arguably fragmenting state, what does that mean for community attempts to respond to crime, for taxi bosses mobilizing against the, the sort of recent uprising? What, what does it mean about the compromises and the, and the alliances that are made in complex spaces to achieve security? And I, and I think it, it has wider resonance, clearly, in contemporary South Africa. That certainly was one of the ideas of taking it on. Thank you, Mark, for that. I wanted to ask about the picture that emerges um, from the history that you write. Is, you know, this euphoric phase of transition, the, the dogma or the gospel of community policing, this, this vision at that critical point of 1994 of remaking the relationships between former protagonists and pursuing safety and security for all. That's the moment. Pagot emerges. And I get the impression from the story that you tell that it took quite a long while for the problem to be given a name. Yeah. There's a lot of dithering. There's a lot yeah. of oh my goodness what what's you know what's running on here now and it's only when it is named the problem in a particular way which just reminded me of the importance of giving a problem a name yeah i think that's a very good observation and i think that comes from you know, I, I quote this conference in Cape Town, I, I, uh, 1996, I think it was, or a little bit earlier, this idea that, and, and you yourself know this very well, that the, if there was an ideology on the state side, it was of community policing, of, of building, of repairing the great rifts between the police and the community. And in fact, many of the state responses were colored by this too, not only the sense that Pagat should be talked to, but the sense that I think from people coming in into the new order, for example, that the bomb squad may well have been planting the bombs themselves, that the challenge was from the police, the specialized investigators. I mean, you, you almost couldn't make this stuff up. And a lot of it has been forgotten. But in that very 
conspiratorial world of the transition, we should say. And, and we forget that in looking back a couple of decades afterwards, the enormous suspicions that, that clouded people coming together into the, into a single place, I think is, is, is worth drawing on again. And those suspicions are particularly amongst the intelligence crowd. Um, and that goes without saying they had been enemies spying on each other. The former security branch where the bomb squad itself came. The fact that the, the apartheid era bomb squad had planted bombs as a strategy to undermine the, the liberation movement. So the sense of bombs as a, as a, you know, there's a lot about bombs in this book, as you know. <laughs> it's a very, a very contested discussion, right? Who planted bombs and who just Yes, yes. And, wow. And, and that's why the story of the bomb squad became really very important actually to the book. And that's why it's a sort of, it in the end became a central chapter uh, uh, amongst these, to be honest, very courageous guys who, who, who were then responding. And I think the additional point and the critical point for me was that the post-democratic South African security state was evolving in this moment. So in this 1998 to 2001, there was more innovation than there has been for several decades, without doubt in my mind, legislation, new units, etc. But that the post-apartheid security state never thought it would face a challenge with organized crime. And this is a, a point I personally have made before, you know, that speaking to senior people in the NC, there was a sense that this was a bad flu. This is almost the best metaphor to use that, you know, it would pass. And the instruments of the state were not prepared for a security threat of this challenge. And the focus in the first green papers, white papers, policy instruments of the state were about community policing. So the first inclination of the state is to reach out to Paga to talk. And the key individuals that did that, and, and Paga played it well, partly because there were many people in Paga who wanted to talk. They were eager to talk yeah. faster. But the radical elements who had conceived this as a challenge to the state ultimately had no interest in talking. And in fact, they were extremely clever in their campaign of misinformation. It was absolutely not clear who was planting the bombs for a long time. You know, they, the right-wing provocateurs were blamed, provocateurs yes, yes. Simply were blamed. There was a lot of misinformation. And indeed, many of the victims who I spoke to today still think, well, it was, I was told it was an extortion campaign by people extorting nightclubs and planting bombs. So the idea was to create general uncertainty. It was a very clever campaign. There were attacks against mosques. There were targeting of people within the broader Muslim community. It was a vicious, vicious struggle. And frankly, that vicious struggle was not often visible to people even in Cape Town, although they, people were very conscious of the bombs in the city. But in the sort of different world of Pretoria and Johannesburg, the story of Pagad is, there were Pagad in Johannesburg, far less violent, a different animal. There was a connection raising money from Muslim businesses in, or businessmen in the wider Gauteng space. But uh, the full story was not really widely known until it became clear that the bomb explosions just couldn't carry on. There were re very real costs. And then there's a whole other issue around a new order, which I think, well, the th in, in a way, the threat that was coming for Pagad was an unpredicted threat. It was actually coming from people who had partly aligned themselves with the liberation struggle 
and and so it took a while, as you correctly yeah. point out, for the for the labeling of the threat to occur. I think quite naturally. And and then the state wasn't ready because it didn't have sources in place. It didn't, it was a stumbling response initially until, as the book recounts, a couple of very courageous people stepped forward and and began to do important things to respond. They became convinced that this was a threat to the democracy, and frankly, it was. And I think, Mark, just picking up on that, you know, the chapter in which you begin to to explore, recognize the what you call the institutional innovations, that that is also an important story to tell. Amidst, you know, the mess, the new era, there are people, maybe late 1999, 2000, there are people and again, the story that you tell brings them to the fore. It's the Bulelali Nkukas, it's the Percy Sons, the Anwar Brahmat was in prosecutorial circles, the Vilivillion, and many others that then ended up forging those innovations and moving ahead with an agenda and a political will. Yeah, I think that's fundamentally right. And the, it returns, I think, to a key kind of theme of the book, which you've already picked up on, which is about individual agency. And, you know, in, in academic circles or articles, you talk about the state responding. Well, what does that actually mean when the state responds? Well, it means individuals engaging quite tough internal bureaucratic battles to orientate the state around a response. And that's often lost. And the book is an attempt to to show that. And that's even more the case here because it's the first threat faced by the by this nascent democratic government. And everything done here has shaped everything about specialized security responses in the decade that has followed. That's the point I'm trying to make. We talk a right. lot about scorpions. Well, mm. the scorpions come from here. This is their sort of the seed of the scorpions is here. We need to bring prosecutors, investigators, intelligence people together. We need to put it under the prosecution service because we have to prosecute these people. We can't just incarcerate them. We need witness protection. Witnesses are dying in numbers. Okay, well, let's do this properly. You know, we we need to redo parts of the security state and we need to do it on the fly. Yes, we, yes. We've, we've been talking a lot about community policing and from the 1990s, of course, you know this very well, the debate about building links with the community. But here's the building of a new security and intelligence state, literally right there. And, and it resonates over the, the decades. So in, in my view, this is, again, a story that sort of warrants being, being told. Because the nature of the institutional of the institutions and the institutional debates that we have now are forged in and around the story. Other stories too, but this is an important one. And I think the way in which you know you bring to light those institutional developments, um, the success stories of particularly the Scorpions as a unit, one can only weep later in the book. If we are told once again that the scorpions were disbanded, and you know one's emotional reaction is, how is that possible? 
But of course, that is a whole other story. I wanted to ask about um, the, the difficulties everywhere globally of what is called COVID police policing and counterintelligence. Um, it's quite remarkable in the South African context how little there is about the paradigm of COVID policing. Of course, there's the history about the security branch, but we don't want to go there. Part of the story that you that you kind of write up here is about the challenges of COVID policing, of crime intelligence, of securing informers, of having handlers that are savvy enough about the need to infiltrate groups, um, turning accused into state witnesses, protecting witnesses. The modality of COVID policing is a challenging one. So, so Mark, just a, a question relating to the modality, the complexity of COVID policing. I mean, Arena, I think the first thing which became clear as the research progressed was that there had been an intelligence war, an underground war around Pagad. And basically, the Pagad campaign was won through intelligence. And, and there was a lot of luck and a lot of failure. And, and, but this was a core part of the, 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 the story. But a lot of compromises were made. And in the sort of shadowy world of recruiting blackmailing sources, as, as you would have read, whether it's drugs or, or, or sort of sexual desire, I mean, it, it almost, it's sort of this classic picture of a very difficult and dark world. And what's interesting, I think, is that on both, at least on the state side, people had been used to the collection of political intelligence, let's say. So this key challenge about how do you convert intelligence into evidence, I think, becomes crucial. And it's still a crucial issue. Mm. And I, I, there's so much to say around that. The first point is actually the, the legitimate hostility of some of the, the key detectives, Leonard Knight being one of them, about intelligence. And, and, and he had had a long gripe with the security branch, interestingly enough. And this carried over into the new sort of intelligence operatives. And and one of the first points to make is that, of course, the state in undercover, so, so there were undercover sources, and then there were state agents implanted. For the most part, they couldn't give evidence. They were rejected by the courts. Why? Because state agents had participated in Pagat activities. And why? Because they had to secure their legitimacy within yes. the Pagat cell. So this enormous challenge. So that's, the I think, an important part of the book and the challenges uh, that 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 entailed and the extraordinary bravery, uh, to be honest, and I there wasn't even space to tell all of the stories, but the extraordinary bravery, particularly of volunteers within the police or the intelligence community who volunteered to be implanted agents. The second story around that is that in the great operation which ended all of this, that the bombing of a pub in Belleville, everything comes to a head, as as you know yes. in, the, in the book. The state fails to convert intelligence into evidence because 
the state was exhausted or individuals in the state were exhausted. So they could have arrested guys with bombs in yes. a car. That yeah. would have been a kind of red-handed arrest, which would have presumably stood up in court. But all they had was an empty car with bombers because the bombs had already been planted because they were too late. And so the story of the failure, I think, is as important to illuminating the very real challenges of an intelligence operation where you need evidence to convert into evidence at, at yeah. court. And I think this is the story of contemporary South African organized crime, frankly. You know, there's a lot of cash in transit. You know, t- you, you, t- 20 or 18, I can't remember the number of people were killed in a shootout with police. The whole gang is killed in a shootout with police. And, you know, it was based on intelligence. And you start to wonder, well, is that because it couldn't be converted into evidence? This, this is an ongoing story. This is not yes. a story that is over by any stretch of the imagination because we come from a tradition of covert policing, which is yep. different. And I don't think the state has the, the way of converting to evidence uh, perhaps is a, a, a long way to go. And I, at least for me, the, the book illuminates a, a lot of that. And how do you build intelligence and investigation and prosecution into the same space? I think the Pagat story is full of that. That does not take away from the facts that the, this war, and it was a war, was won in the shadows. Uh, uh, more, more, I would argue, in, uh, uh, until the end where some important court cases were won. This is an important component of the book. Just to reassure whoever is interested in reading the book, that this is not just a book looking back story. It's very much a story that looks back and then concludes in the miraculous space of five or six or seven pages to say, what does this mean for fighting, containing, engaging organized crime in 2023 in South Africa? And I think there is um, there's a recognition of the extraordinary scale, depths, widths of the challenge. And there is, at the same time, I think, your ability to borrow from the lessons and say, this is what is required in order to move ahead. So for those interested, uh, the story eventually looks ahead. By way of conclusion, Mark, I was fascinated by the story about the gold chain of Rashad Stahi. That moment that he is publicly lynched, burnt, the chain is grabbed from his neck. And you turn that later on in the story, much later, you you turn that into something to think about. What is the importance of the appropriation of the gold chain for understanding the morphing of Pagot as an organization. I mean, as you can imagine, when I found out about the gold chain, I I was gobsmacked, but it illustrated something much bigger, which were the economic underpinnings underpinnings of the struggle uh, of the Pagot campaign, that because people felt strongly in the community that well, within Pagat, that the gangs had acquired their resources illegally, which indeed they had, that it was open season to take 
those resources. And that was justified ideologically to steal from gangsters. But that rapidly developed into extorting gangsters. The book doesn't cover this in such a lot of detail, but some gangsters paid not to be killed. So the the sense of the <laughs> typical, I mean, the student, why would that be surprising in South Africa or anywhere else, that there was a not only a politics, but a political economy to the campaign. It was a, a campaign of acquisition. And Pagat needed to be funded. And so if you confiscate cash from a drug lord's house and you feed it into the, the Pagat central pot, it's not long before you take some for yourself. And once you begin to take some for yourself, all sorts of compromises are made. And indeed, that is what, based on the internal narratives of people in Pagat itself, causes the split in Pagat. And these are the accusations that fling between the what you might call the old Pagat as the split occurred when people emerge from prison and before that, and the Pagat G-Force, that it's basically G-Force is a criminal group. And of course, there are elements of that. I think this is an, a critical part of the story, actually, that there's economic accumulation taking place, which distorts the organization, but then frankly begins to shape it. And I think the important lesson is that whenever violence is applied in a criminal economy, illicit economic imperatives overtake any ideological ones. And I'm pretty certain that that would apply to any case of vigilantism because the temptations are too great. And if you read the broader literature around vigilantism, actually this appears very often. As soon as you are threatening, distorting, taking, as in the case of the chain, you take more and you justify that quite easily as saying, well, these are bad guys and the state doesn't care anyway, so we do this. And then you become criminal yourself. And this transition from vigilante to criminal is the story of the chain. Yes, there's criminal planting the bombs in this ideological campaign. Clearly, this is criminal, but that, that's a kind of urban terror campaign. Underneath all of that is the transition to, frankly, a criminal group. I think that's a very important element of the story, which the chain fantastic symbol of every year that you know these guys take out the chain and put it on to remember the 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 event and that the chain for gangsters is a symbol of wealth you wear a chain because you want to show that you're successful so the chain carries a lot of symbolism and but also a lot of symbolic analytical value if you like so mark i think that's a very appropriate moment to say it's a story about pagot and so much more. It's a story that can be put to comparative use as we try and make sense of what often seems to be a very bewildering environment. I want to say we unfortunately didn't have time to just talk about Chapter 7, two bomber groups, the one Pagod Bombers and the Anti-Bomb Squad. And in that one little chapter, there are two stories told. And the men in black, that is a fascinating story. Um, and thank you also for just recognizing those ones that operate in the kind of dark and who do not seek the kind of acceptance or recognition often. That is a fascinating story also. So that's Breaking the Bombers, as we indicated, likely to appeal to a wide range of interests. Mark, thank you. 
for the book. Thank you very much, Arina. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.